And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. It's not about me I'm only here for a minute and I know that I can't fix it I can help even just a little bit Won't you let me try Hello, welcome to our Lads and Powers. This is Scott Powers of The Athletic. Mark uh, Mark Lazarus is not with us this week. He's on he's on vacation. Uh, as a special guest and our first, uh, I think our first multi-time guest here is, uh, is Gerald Belfry, who... Uh, who Daryl and I wrote a book together. It's uh, I guess it's been a couple of years now since it's come out, and the paperback version actually just came out this past year. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the book. But uh, Daryl's, uh, you know, he's he's uh, one of the pioneers of player development, and um, you know, has certainly worked with some of the best players in the game, and uh, you know, works for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and uh, you know, worked with the Chicago Steel before previously, and kind of you know, uh, yeah, did some extraordinary stuff with the Steel, and um, and and you know, but you know, a bunch of coaches have coached for him and have now gone on to NHL jobs too. And, um, Gerald, yeah, welcome back. Uh, yeah. First time, first multi, multi-time guest for us. So welcome. Well, that's a pretty good distinction. I'll take it. I'll take yeah. it. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's great to be great to be back and always nice talking to you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I guess, I mean, we, the first time that we spoke was, was, you know, obviously you working with Patrick Kane and me covering the Blackhawks. It's probably been, five or six years. And I always, I love the story about how this book came about. And I, I remember we, we, we obviously kind of talked a little bit, just, you know, me quoting you. And then um, I remember tweeting about you one day and, you know, I'd said something positive. And then I remember you DMing me and you said, Oh, have you ever thought about doing a book? And I said, I, ah, you know, I don't know what, yeah, <laughs> what are you thinking? And, um, and then it, it sat like that for like this idea, like someday we do a book and it was like three or four years later and, and triumph had come to me about a different book idea. And I said, I, I actually told him I wasn't interested in, but I said, well, I have this other idea. And, and I, you know, I had no idea like whether, whether someone would, would latch on to it or not. And, and, and they were like, yeah, we'd, we'd love that. And, and here we are. And, 
we had the hardcover come out and I guess right before the pandemic, I don't know, it's, the time just all kind of the last few years kind of skewed, but then, then the paperback just came out this, uh, this December, January. It's, uh, yeah, it's been kind of crazy to, I, I, I guess I, I, I look at it on the bookshelf and it's like, it's, it's weird that it's still there, you know? I can't even believe it myself. I couldn't believe that it got on the bookshelf to begin with, let alone <laughs> it's still there. Uh, it's pretty, pretty crazy, but it's been really well received. Uh, so I've, I've been very pleased with it and, and, uh, the, of uh, the response and then the questions that go with it. And it's just been a, it's been a really, it was a really positive experience, you know, writing a book is of course I, I, I had not really done it to that extent before. And, uh, it's a pretty daunting process. So you're very nervous about not only the process itself, but then you got to hope that the product comes out and that it's well received. So I don't know. I think we got lucky. Yeah, no, for sure. What, what's, you know, I, we'll dive into a bunch of different topics, but I, I, I thought kind of stemming from the book that you've, uh, it, it seems like it's opened a lot of discussions for you and a lot of different, I, I know that you've kind of, you've created your own web or kind of your, your website's evolved and, and you've created more of a, a community for people that, you know, to talk about the book and talk about the ideas and, um, how, you know, how is the book, uh, you know, obviously the reception has been great, um, but how is it, I guess you, have you taken that, it seems like you've taken that conversation and, and continue to expand on it. Yeah. Like, uh, like with writing a book, there's so much that you can't include because a book can be only so many pages before people don't want to read it anymore. So you, you know, you, you cut a lot out. And so you know, whether it's, you know, more stories or better illustrations of a, of a, of a current topic that was in the book or more uh, other ideas that were left out. There's been a lot of intrigue about, you know, some of the concepts in the book, obviously it's, it's primarily about teaching, right? It's not even really like a quote unquote, like hockey book of drills and things like that. It's more about the process of teaching and relationship building. And I, I think it opened up a discussion or a conversation amongst, you know, coaches and parents. Um, and so now what I've done is I've taken that and created a, a community for people to, to be able to share with me. Um, and for me to continue on a lot of those topics that I hadn't had a chance to really include in the book. So, you know, we're, I think we're one year in, I think this is the, this is the 12th month of the, of the, the online, um, online community. And, uh, it's been going great. And, you know, it's interesting as I, I write there, I do like, uh, uh, you know, two articles a month. Then we do some development video, uh, different concepts that, you know, that our membership people are interested in. And then every, at the end of every month, we do a zoom call, which starts off as like a, a review of what we were working on before, what we were talking about during the month or the content of the month. And then it goes all different directions, which has been fantastic. So I I've been really happy with the whole direction of it, but what I love the most is that there's now a lot more of a conversation around relationships and teaching, which I don't think was out there as much before. So I, I it really excites me to be able to be a, a part of that discussion because that was what served me so well in my career. What what sort of I guess what's what's the hot topics right now? What's what's going on in player development? What are what are people interested in? Yeah, uh the biggest thing that people are interested in is trying to uh figure out how to structure drills differently. Um, you know, for the longest time 
we were very assembly line oriented, or you would do one drill for one thing and then move on and do another topic and do another drill for another thing. Now it's it, it then the whole conversation switched to these small area games, which I, I I like, but I think have limitations. And so people are curious about like why do you have limited like what do you think is problematic about uh, or limiting about small area games and. And then I say, well, I think you need to build into it. I don't think you just drop into a small area game. So then, okay, well, how do you build into it? Like, what does that look like? And this past month, I showed this one drill format that was a multifaceted drill format. So you could do four or five different things in the drill uh, format and you could change. And it's really got endless uh, different uh, possibilities to it. So just a lot of like open-ended ways to create decision making but not have total chaos um and get the right you know get a good number of repetitions on the key drills or key aspects that you want to work on because the problem with small area games is that it's great because they're in a confined space and you can have certain topics but you can lose a lot of the repetitiveness of of what's needed and you can see that like players can organize to create that but you know, you will still need the repetition. So I was trying to illustrate over the last couple of months how to illustrate, how to differentiate between something that's just straight repetitiveness, like something in isolation, you're just repeating it over and over again, and then it becomes very mindless. And then the other end is an actual game where you're trying to manufacture this moment and you lose that repetitiveness. This now gives you kind of a little bit of a hybrid or a way to get there. So it, it gives you a bit more of a bridge. So you can do something in isolation where you care about getting a lot of reps on a particular aspect. Then you do this hybrid thing that we've been talking about. And then that sets you up for the game, which now the kids have a much better uh, ability to be able to manufacture those moments. So I've always thought that there's a section just prior to the game that was really important and it always served me well. So that's the type of thing that we we start talking about. And that's what a lot of the coaches are really interested in now is just trying to find different formats that serve uh, to serve their players and give them what they need to be able to acquire the skills. One of the main reasons they and I I guess before I actually joined the athletic, I was freelancing a lot and I was doing some stuff for USA Hockey. So I felt like I I you know I was writing about small area games and I know that was like a big focal point they wanted me to write about was to kind of pump up them doing this and it, and it sounded like one it was about the touches and two it it's it, it, there's certain kids that are certainly just I guess physically mature at this age where they're you know like an open ice they're just going to skate away from everyone and th this I guess the benefit to open or the small area games is that it put everyone more on an even uh, I guess even platform and allows them to kind of it allows everyone to kind of develop the same or, you know, same, same pace in some ways. Yeah. I, I think the, the best benefit is that there's more like a, a greater level of opportunity for turnovers to happen. Like you can, the puck changes hands so much more frequently. So then the idea is that there's a lot more of a lot, a lot more opportunity for more kids to be able to handle the puck. And yeah. it, ha it happens so much more frequently. And so the initial studies had a lot to do with, Hey, you're going to touch the puck a lot more, which I don't think is, I don't think is wrong. I think that's absolutely correct. 
What I think is the best benefit of that particular structure is actually the skating benefit, because one of the challenges that you have with young players is they tend to be very inside edge dominant or they stride over striding. So they go from one end to the other and they just stride all the way down the ice. So they're too much on their inside edges. Now, when you're in a smaller space, now you got to be on your outside edge. You got to turn, you got to stop, you got to start, you got to maybe pivot, you got to transition. So there's a lot more skating skills and use or mastery of edges that come from being in those smaller area aspects. The other thing too, is there's not a lot of hockey sense that comes in when I'm just better than you. So I just go get the puck and I take off and a lot there's and in open ice, particularly when, when, uh, you know, there's, they're really young, there's a lot of open ice. So if I get a puck and I get a step, it's 10 steps and I'm gone. Well, now, you know, you put them in small, smaller spaces and now it, it just uh, allows for more of an opportunity for others to, to be able to participate and, and get involved and have the, the sequences be more dynamic in nature in terms of overall skill, uh, skill development. So there's a lot, definitely a lot of benefits. The real, the problem is, is you fight against the achievement gap, the the best players are still the best players and that players towards the bottom, no one's really illustrated to me that there's uh, a real benefit for those players. I think that the kids who are all already kind of at the top, it gives them a lot of different ways in which they can manufacture different moments, but kids towards the bottom, unless they're going against kids who are of equal ability, um, then they're going to have, a, they're going to struggle no different than they struggled before. The only thing is it's in a smaller space rather than a bigger space. So that's where I think we have to do a better job on the development side is on the two extremes. The middle kids get a lot out of it. The top kids, obviously they're going to figure it out no matter what, but it's those kids that we're really trying to influence at the bottom. Now you get the puck. Can you take a couple steps? Can you evade some pressure? Can you, you know, can you get your head up and see before the play comes? Can you do all those sorts of things? I think we're still struggling with trying to find uh, that that's we're we're suggesting that small area games are going to solve that issue. And I just haven't seen that. I think you need steps to get there. And uh, so that's really what I've been uh, I've been advocating over the last little bit. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I, I want to evolve this conversation in the pro hockey some more, but I actually, I just had a conversation with a, a good friend of mine and he has, uh, he's like 11, 12 year old. Um, and, and he's a small kid, you know, like he's, uh, and, and he's skilled and he's played for some of the top triple A teams in, in Illinois. And, um, but 
you know, like there was there was some kids who left one program and it went to his and b- bumped him out. And he's a you know he's younger for his age. He's small. Um, and I guess it's, it's probably you know this happens in all athletics, but it, all these kids are hitting puberty at different ages, and uh, and sometimes it just depends on if you're the youngest kid in your your age group. Like there's uh, there's already this massive hurdle. I, I guess fr- from your standpoint, how do you like you don't want those kids left behind, right? Like you you like how do you how do you keep those kids involved and um, at least you know keep them in you know competitive so they're not giving up the sport or just giving them a chance to maybe. Um, you know, catch up at a later age when they're more physically mature. I think the most the most difficult part is how precluding we create the elite level of the of of uh, of hockey. So at 12 years old, there's a top level, a triple A level or whatever. And you know, from eight, nine, ten, players been able to function and be very good at that age. And then all of a sudden, to your point, you know, the puberty ages all get I'll go and he gets left behind. He's six months behind, which may as well be two years um, and in physical development. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's not as competitive. And I, I think that the real thing that is important to understand is there's nothing worse than being on a team in which you're not very important to that team. And so with the economics of hockey, a lot of times you have to have nine or 10 forwards. You have to have six defensemen, but the truth is, is there might be only, there might be only five or six kids that really are quote unquote, triple a or elite level players. And the other kids are just the next group that we don't have anybody else. So they're going, and it's not really best for their development. Those kids might benefit from not being at that top level. They might benefit from being at the next level where now they can have the puck more, they can have more success. They can be important. And so I I think that uh, a lot of times it's, you know, it's like take one step back to take two steps forward sometimes is best for kids who are in that in that in that situation their december birthdays they're you know a full 12 months behind a lot of the kids uh, who are january february march they're you know between 9 and 12 months behind and then in age let alone then the maturity factor comes in they could be like i said 2 years behind in the physicality of it so sometimes it's best and we don't like to do that as parents and the kids certainly who've been on a triple a team for you know since they're eight years old now they get to 12 and they're like i don't like now you're bumping me out so they go try to find like another triple a program to play on and it can be a real slippery slope you might be better to be on a team where you're important you're important you can handle the puck you can make plays you can enjoy the game. And I think that that sometimes gets lost with the number of letters that go on the, on the jacket. I don't know that that's most important thing. Most important thing is that you're playing on a team that values you and wants you there. And that you're not just an extra piece or someone who could be easily shuffled to the back of the line for, you know, when there's an important power play, you're out or it gets to the words, the last few minutes of the game and you can't get on the ice. Like, I think that's really damaging to a lot of kids. And so for my, what I like to talk about is I like to say, like, evaluate how important you are and make that be your most important decision for your play, for your son or daughter, rather than trying to keep up with the, uh, with the, the, the triple a mentality where you may physically not be ready to be able to compete there. But if you handled the puck at the lower level and you really built your confidence, when you do hit, 
you might be able to then come in and be a good player um, at a later date because everyone, uh, you know, it always flips two or three times in terms of who's really good. There's some kids that are good from eight all the way up. Then there's kids who are really good from eight to a certain level and then they fall off. And then there's kids who are considered really no good for a while. And then all of a sudden they get to 13, 14 and they're really good. It all happens different for every kid. And I think we got to we got to keep that in mind. You know, Patrick Kane's obviously one of your probably most famous clients and certainly some of you've been with the longest. And not that he was I mean, he was a smaller kid and, and he obviously showed ability. But I, I know it's something that we've even talked about. Is it going into that draft here? Like it, it wasn't he wasn't thought to be the number one pick, was he? Like it wasn't no. he wasn't ex- expected to be that player in the in and um you know I know it's something that we've talked about. I need to write at some point, but I, I guess having you here today and um what what do you remember about that that evolution of just you know him you seeing the talent but then just him I think it was a second round projected second rounder or something like that, wasn't it? Yeah, he wasn't I don't think he was he was rated to go in the first round uh prior to the actual year he went. So he left when he, he had played two years at the program and because his birthday is November, he was in the back half. So he, his draft year wasn't at 18. It was at 19. So then he went to London and uh, when he went there, he of course tore the, tore the rubber right off the puck that year. And just every month it seemed like he was gaining more and more traction and ultimately went number one, but it was one of those things that was, I don't think very expected. People were wondering and questioning, how is he going to do in the OHL? OHL is considered, you know, one of the best, if not the best uh, development leagues in the world. And so, hey, how's he going to fare? How's he going to do physically? Can he survive? All those things. And all of a sudden it was, you know, 60 plus goals and a hundred and however, 160 points or whatever it was, it was completely ridiculous. And then every month that went by, he just got more and more traction. So, you know, I think he was one of those players. It was like, wait and see, let's see how he does. And, and, you know, this talent, no one would have debated his talent. He was probably, uh, you know, even before this year started, like if you have a kid with a puck, you know, how many kids with a puck would you, would you have over him? You wouldn't have had many, but there were obviously questions about his size. He was under 150 pounds going into London just really, really uh, odd. He was almost under 150 pounds when he went into Chicago. I think he was 155 going into Chicago. I think he won rookie of the year in the NHL at 155 pounds. Just completely crazy, right? But um, what's interesting about Patrick, if we kind of tie the last two topics together, Patrick and then being this undersized kid who kind of hit puberty hits late and being late in the birth year, that's Patrick. I mean, he, he was elite though. Like he was very good. He was able to, you know, generate points, but there were people that were questioning him every year. Oh, this is going to be the year he gets hurt. This is going to be the year he falls off. And he was able to kind of maintain or find different ways to, to be able to contribute. But what was very interesting every, uh, every year they had a state tournament and, um, Patrick would play every year. Um, but it was supposed to be for every other year. So every major year, you would have a state tournament. And uh, because of Patrick's birth year, he was able to go back and play with the Patrick's and 88 birthday. So in the off years that the 88s were not majors, they were minors. So if it was like minor peewee, for example, um, he could play major Bantam with the 89 or uh, sorry, major uh, squirt, squirt major 
with the with the 89s in the state tournament. So he would play, I don't know, 10 or 12, 15 games. I don't know how many it was to qualify. And then he would go play. And I always said when he went back and played those games and then ultimately played the final tournament and then came back the following year, he was always better because he had done that. And I thought at the time, it was a big, like, as it went along each of every other year, it would happen. I was like, he, this is a, this is an advantage for him because he gets to play the state tournament every year because he was always playing with the 88. So then he would, he would go back, but it, it really speaks to that idea. And I don't think a lot of kids do that or have the opportunity to do that. And he took full advantage of it. And I thought it was a major part of his development because he, always was better coming back. And why was he better? Well, because he dominated the state, uh, state tournament at the, at the, you know, his, the younger age group, the 89, um, he was so skilled, so much better, so much faster. So he would rack up a ton of points and he would try different new things. And then he would bring all that confidence, all of those new skills and everything the following year. And so it, it is something that I think uh, more kids could talk about. Now, maybe it's not a situation where they play all year with their major age group or minor age group and then go down for the state tournament, but maybe it's something where you go down, play that year so that you can come back and be better the following year because you've had the puck the whole time. And I thought it served Patrick was one of the real secrets. I thought to his minor hockey success that built him up into that. So, and then when he went to, like when he went to Honeybake that whatever it was 14 or 15, he was, he was, uh, he was dominant there, but there was always questions surrounding him just because of his, uh, you know, of his, his size and his stature and just how he played. Cause he wasn't like particularly fast either. He wasn't like the little guy that was zipping around so fast. He was very cerebral to make plays. He could beat you one-on-one, but he wasn't like blistering fast. So that's what gave a lot of credit, I guess, to people who were naysayers towards him. One of the questions I've always had, and I, and I guess just having covered the Blackhawks, is just sometimes you see a prospect that's drafted, you know, early, um, and and there's sometimes you, there's a an urgency to get him up to you know to the AHL or do the NHL and and skip steps and um, you know a kid in his draft year, you know, if he's drafted in the first round, he's obviously had a pretty good year, um, you know. But how quick, like, is there is there a benefit to a kid staying in? Um, you know, junior or, or college and, you know, really dominating for a year. And, 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 you know, like we're, we're obviously, you know, he could be in the NHL or he could be somewhere playing, but is there a benefit to having that experience of dominating? And then, you know, instead of, um, you know, I guess accelerating, you know, getting to that next level. Yeah. I think where, where it comes in and conventional wisdom would tell you that it's, it's important to dominate at a level before you move on to the next level. So, and, and the question is, well, why, why is that important? Like what, what is the real reason why it's important to dominate at a, at a level before you move on to the next? And the real reason is because at the next level, uh, as you're pushing up, so let's say you're saying you're going to come out of junior, you're drafted from the OHL and you're going to, you're in the first round and you're going to jump right up and play in the NHL. The issue is, is that the NHL is not the faint of heart. It's a very difficult league. It's the best league in the world. And it's going to be wrought with failure and questions and concerns and alike. And so what you have to fall back on is your 
sense of confidence, your sense of, uh, of achievement. Um, and that is what carries you through because now you have a belief in yourself and you don't change your game too dramatically. If you have kids who haven't dominated the level previous and they come up too quickly without having the benefit of that, what ends up happening is they don't have that real sense, authentic sense of, of uh, their identity as a player and total belief in it. And so when things go bad, which they will, um, they don't have that core basis to, to grab onto. So they start changing their game. And in changing their game, they get further and further disconnected from what really makes them good or what really is authentic. And now they start trying to be someone else. Well, it's like anything in life. You're not going to be great trying to be someone else. The only chance to be great is to be the best version of yourself. But try telling that to a kid who's 19 years old, who's in the National Hockey League, who, you know, he's in his dream, but then it's turning into a bit of a nightmare because he can't get a solid footing or he's, you know, he goes 10 or 15. I remember years ago, I had a player who was dropped in the first round. Everyone was first overall. He was really, everyone was really excited. He went 20 games without scoring a goal. He said, Daryl, I haven't gone three games in my life without scoring a goal. And now I'm 20 games, and this is in the NHL in the rookie year. It's a really tough league, and you're going to have that. And so the benefit of dominating in the league that you were in is the is the value of when you do go up and it goes bad, you hold your identity and don't change. I think one of the better examples of that is Kale McCarr. He's a really good example of that. Like he got drafted. And he stayed in college that one extra year. Now, you could argue that the year that he got drafted, he was dominating as well. Like he, he was an extremely talented player. But then he went to college and they, they had a great ride. I don't know if they won it all or I believe they did that year. Um, but he was a main, obviously a big part of that. And he was whole, uh, changing the whole thing. So when he come into Colorado, like he had that swagger already. He had that feeling. And then of course it goes up and down and he, he was able to ride that out and he's still that player that he was in college, only more refined and more NHL. He's kind of dropped a few of the bad habits that you normally would have, but he hasn't lost his identity. And that is so precious for any player is you have to hold that authentic identity and many don't. And that usually creates a more problems than not. What's interesting is that there's there's levels that are like, you know, you have to go to like you're a 13, 14, 16, like, you know, like you you, you, you hit certain levels. Then either you join the USHL or you're in the CHL, uh, you're in college. And then there's this level, the American League, where it's sometimes optional, you know, like it's, it's this odd part where sometimes either you're ready for the NHL, you know, like obviously Kane um, benefited from the ice time and all these different things where he, you know, he got that for other players. Um, then it's, you know, I watch the American league games and it's like, I can see the benefit, but I also be like, you know, like it's not always pretty hockey, right? Like it's, you're not always playing with skilled players. You're, you're playing with a lot of guys who could be bottom six guys. Maybe like where, where do you see the, uh, where does the AHL fit in the whole development picture and how, uh, how, when is it right? When is it wrong for, for player development? I think the best benefit of the American Hockey League is the maturity component to it. And the uh, it's a very good um, reality check of 
the difficulty of pro hockey. And it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, very good programs where they have uh, excellent veteran players who had played, you know, some time in the NHL. Maybe they have a similar path. They were, you know, very good junior players, of course. They go to play pro, they work their way up, they get into the NHL, and then now they're on their way down and they're providing uh, mentorship uh, for these young players. There's a, a ton of, I would say, extra resources that aren't, re- that isn't really available at any other level than is in the American League. So the benefit of the American League is you're going to get things there you can't get anywhere else. You're, you're not going to be able to find too many guys who, you know, they, they, you're, you're in that mix. And then you have the, rea- and the real interesting part, too, is the call-up situation is not always eat what you kill. It's not always the best guy goes up. There's con- now with the salary cap, there's contracts that are, uh, have to be considered. There's how it works inside the cap. So you could be having a career year as a 22-year-old. And all of a sudden, you know, it's time for, you know, they have a left winger on your parent team that's that's injured and they take another guy. And the reason that they take another guy is because the math makes more sense. But meanwhile, you're better or playing better than that person. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot of understanding about the preparation that it takes to be an everyday NHL player, which is extraordinarily uh, undervalued how difficult that really is to be an everyday NHL player. Be an everyday NHL player playing 15 minutes a night. It doesn't sound like much. It is incredibly difficult because you have to maintain a certain level of play where when you're in college, you know, you play, you know, you have a four point uh, game on Saturday and then you, you know, pick up an empty net assist on Sunday, uh, but you weren't really very good on the Sunday. Well, you know, that's okay here in the NH, if you get playing in the NHL, you, you can't do that. You have to play the same way and the consistency of the, of the competitiveness and the value and the preparation of how your body has to be. It's just incredible. And I think the American league provides a lot of that. And they have um, a lot of coaches that are extremely good. Well, like they have a lot of experience and they're able to lend that to these players. So you can leverage the environment so that you don't have to learn every lesson. You know what I mean? They're going to be able to provide you great insight. That's why the American League, I think, is so important. So if you get a player who, you know, has some fragility in their confidence, that's a great place to harden them. It's not, it's very, it's got a similar mindset to the NHL, but it's harder to play. A lot of players will tell you, particularly the skill players, not necessarily players in the bottom six, but for sure the skill players will tell you it's way harder to play in the American league than it is in the NHL. In the NHL, when you're playing with skilled players, they're in the right spot all the time. When you play in the American league, they're not always in the right spot. There's still a lot of development or there's still guys that the reason that they're there is because they're not in the right spot when they go to the NHL. So that's the reason that's the whole reason why they're there. So you have to learn how to be able to play and produce with those types of players because now when you go to the NHL, it's going to be easier but harder at the same time. Easier that they're there 
harder because now you have to execute. So I think the demand for excellence every day and being able to grind through the season and find that excellence, that's a, a, a very unique feature in that league because of how, how competitive it is and its natural parent system with the, with the NHL that, and then all the hardships that come with that. It's a very good, tough league, very tough league. I remember watching one of the steel practices you guys were doing and, and you were, I remember you purposely throwing bad passes, you know, and it just, it's something that I hadn't really seen before. We're just, you know, like you, everyone's taught, you know, tape the tape and, you know, perfect pass, but it was, it, it was, it, it, it certainly made me think of things differently and certainly, you know, helping you with the book made me think a lot of different things just outside the box, but just the idea that how do you adjust when the pass is balancing or when, you know, when it's not right where you want it and just being able to, you know, still make something out of it. it it's it, yeah, it, it was, it was eye opening for me just to see you guys, um, yeah, putting, you know, putting players at that, that level where, where the passes aren't always crisp and always on and, you know, having them to deal with it. Well, the reality is, is that the passer may not have another choice, but to give you that pass because of the context of the defender that's there. So there's a perfect passing lane that, that would be an easy, straight, direct, uh, tape to tape pass. The problem is a defender is in that lane because they're that's what they do. They're especially in the NHL, he's in the lane every time. So now not only do you, the receiver, need to adapt to, well, this is the best place for me to receive the puck, but really the guy's gonna have to put it uh, five feet in front of me because the pay the way the the way that the configuration is of the defender is causing me to have that or in an attempt to get it to you, they have to put it in the air. And now when it lands, it doesn't land particularly flat. Now it's a little bobbly or it's a little bit more in my feet. They're slightly behind me. It's not necessarily that the passer is bad. It's that the environment of the defender and the way that the defender is defending makes it so difficult to make those types of passes. So that's why it's so important. And then you take it on the flip side where you're the actual passer. Well, the odds of you being able to make tape-to-tape passes every time unimpeded with no defensive stick or defender in the way, that just doesn't happen. Like Eight out of 10 of those passes, someone's going to be in the way. So now you have to problem solve. You got to learn how to make good passes in bad situations. Bad situation meaning the defender has a stick right on the puck. So now you have to, you know, you might have to hook the pass around pass or you might have to pull a puck close to your feet to pass just to change the angle to just to get that passing lane to go through or you might have to put it in the air to get it over there you have to problem solve because the defender is in the way and that's why defense is easier to teach than offense because offense there's so much of that problem solving that has to occur because the probability of you being in able to have these direct lanes is so low. So the higher you go, the better the defenders are, the more problem solving has to happen on both ends, both the receiver, who's likely not going to get a perfect pass that comes in flat right where they want it. Because the other end, the passer has had to problem solve a defensive configuration that's made it difficult to get it there. So that's why the people that can really pass consistently and you know, you think of the Canes and you think of the Backstroms and you think of, you know, Quinn Hughes or you think of, 
you know, those types of players, a McKinnon and Ranton and those types of players that are just elite, elite, elite passers, uh, even fo- like Fox in New Jersey and New York is phenomenal too. The way these guys can problem solve the, the sheet and be able to still give you good pucks, it's really remarkable because the, the odds of you being able to have clean lanes to pass the puck through, it just doesn't happen. It's just, it's just not, it's not happening at a high frequency. The highest frequency is a defensive pressure stick skates, multiple bodies in layers to try to get pucks where you want to go. That's the reality. So that's the, that's why when we're in the Chicago steel or now with Muskegon, or we're, you know, I'm talking about even players in the American league or, or wherever, always be working on the problem solving. Don't just make a direct pass, figure out different ways in which you can change the angle of the puck to be able to get it there, because that's going to be your reality. If you want to play in a good league. I think that's the thing that I've come to appreciate about Kane the most on the ice is just, uh, it's the vision of the, you know, one that he he sees some of these plays happen, but just being able to put a backhanded saucer pass on, and, you know, like Dylan Strom's had some goals as of late where like, you know, like Strom, you know, like he's in the right place at the right time. And I think that's what Strom does so well is that he puts himself in positions and he, he also sees the ice, you know, really well. Um, but Kane, the yeah, just to hit him with some of the passes he hit him, or the way that him and Debrinket are playing, or it's more and more like him and Panarin, you know, yes. like where they're just it, it's spread out and it. Um, you know, I, I talked to Kane actually just yesterday for we did a story on Taves, his thousandth game, and playing with Taves, and um, you know, and for so long him and Taves played uh, played together, and there's there's a certain way that Taves plays, you know, and, and yes. it's, it's certainly more of uh, a puck support game and more of. You know, like you're playing a little bit closer to him. And then with Panarin, it just evolved to this, uh, yeah, just, you know, circle to circle game. And um, and now with the Brinkett, I, I think, you know, now they've gotten a longer run at five on five. And, and certainly they've always been dangerous in power play and in, in, in overtime. But, you know, like I even told you last year, like the five on five numbers weren't great between the two. And now uh, that's evolved too, where I think they, you know, like they're finding like the Brinkett obviously knows, uh, you know, he's always looking for Kane to pass in the puck. And Kane, I think, understands it too. And, um, but it's this constant evolution of Kane's game that it's, you know, like playing with Taves, like you had to play one way with Panarin another and, and to bring it's a little bit more similar to Panarin, but it's also, you know, it's, it's, it's a different game too. There it is. Yeah. This, yeah. It's, it's been a constant evolution of not just playing one style of style of, you know, offensive hockey. If you want to be great and which Patrick obviously is, um, it's you, you can, you have to evolve and you have to be able to play with different players. And the truth of the matter is, is that the better you play with one player, the more likelihood you're going to be split up. (laughs) And the reason is most teams just don't have the offensive depth. So when you play really well with someone, the, the instinct is, well, we need to spread out the scoring because we can't just have one line because everyone just keys on that line. We just don't have depth. So then, you know, you've seen it in Chicago many times. Kane and Kane and uh, Debrinket, they get going, they start getting on a run. It looks like they're gonna, you know, tear the tear the league apart, and then all of a sudden they get split up. And what's the reason? Well, the reason they're getting split up is because they need to spread out the depth of scoring, and then that, you know, plays itself out, and then they're back together again or whatever. So Kane is Kane is a player that's you know he prides himself on being an offensive threat all the time and you know the quality of chances that he creates on a nightly basis is insane, um, and 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 he does it in a multitude of different ways. Now the interesting part about Kane is he's able to adapt 
without losing his own identity. He is very authentic. He plays the same way in some senses in terms of recurring patterns. He has a lot of certain recurring patterns he does over and over and over again that leads him to a higher probability of success. And he bends other players into that. So you talk about Strom. One of the things he does really well with Strom is he leads him with the puck to where he wants him to go. So he'll put the puck into the space that he wants Strom to go in, and then Dylan will go in there. And then the next time, Dylan already knows that's where he needs to go, so he'll do that. Kane, over the years, has done a brilliant and a masterful job of putting the puck where, because he sees it, the other player may not see it as well. So he, when he sees it, rather than being frustrated, like, hey, why didn't you go there? He just puts the puck there and then they skate into it. And then, of course, the conversation starts. Well, why would you put the puck there? Well, because I saw this, this, this is the pattern I'm trying to create. And off you go. So he's able to bend people into his patterning, which is why he's able to maintain the production. If he was just a chameleon that was doing this, that, and the other, and totally changing and disregarding different things, he he would have he would struggle. You can't get that because you don't have consistency. He's able to consistently produce because he holds his identity and bends other people in it. And yes, Caves plays a certain way. He gets Panera and he realizes, you know what, this guy, he could play like we could go dot to dot here. But if you watch Kane now, he does similar things. He's available in similar places. He still does the pull up. He still attacks through the middle of the ice. He plays a lot like a center after he comes out of his own. He likes the puck on his offside of the rink. He's been doing that for as long as he's been in Chicago, but you adapt in certain ways. And at certain times you have to start a certain pattern with a different player. So with, with Taves, you have to start a certain pattern in a different way, but you have to do that earlier with Panarin. It was same pattern, but later. So it was always, always like same pattern, but it would catch you at the different point of, that pattern. And if you watch him, his game is so like so disciplined in how repetitive the nature is. And that's why his production is so good. And that's consistent with every top player in the league. They have certain things that they do every night and they find the new players that they play with. They bend them into their game. They put them into their patterns and then realize where their strengths are and highlight those strengths at the different parts of the pattern. It's it's absolute genius. Um, but you see that it's, key, it's not exclusive to Kane. Those are things that happen amongst the you know top 15, top 20 players in the world. That's why they're the top 20 players in the world. I always thought it was a shame that Kane couldn't convince Panarin to come out to the uh come out to see you for the summer and just be able to work with oh, those two for a little bit. You were disappointed. Oh my God. <laughs> I would have I would have loved that. I mean He's just such a, another, like, I, I know I'm selfish. I want to be with the most, you know, the most, you know, the, the genius level hockey, the most genius level hockey players as I can be with, because that's when I learned the most. So I just felt like, you know, if we could have had an opportunity to, to, to spend some time with him, the amount that I would have learned about why he does what he does. That's the real science behind it is like, Hey, I noticed you do this over and over again. What's the why behind it? And then they start explaining what the why is and how it fits in the context of the rest of their game. Like, 
that that stuff's pretty fascinating. They all have a different like they're each of these top players. It's like a fingerprint. There's is a very it's very unique. Even though they produce certain results or they come at it a certain way, they're still very different. And that's the hard part about building teams, right? Is that your best player is maybe like somebody, but not exact. They still have their own things, and that's that. That's where the genius comes in and building a team around some of this type of talent is that it's really hard because you have to know that player so well to figure out that other types of players are going to work well with them. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight? Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Available of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. You know, the big question now, and I'm not going to put you in the spot and ask you where Patrick Kane's playing in the future, but how, how much longer do you, you know, there's always a question, a guy when he gets 33, 34, you know, where, where does it fall off with, with his type of game? Where, how long do you think he can keep playing at this level? It, I, I just don't, he doesn't play a hard game in terms of his the 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 wear and tear on his body he he plays hard he competes he's really i think underrated how competitive he is but his stride efficiency is so high his intelligence he gets to the right place at the right time he's able to play between checks which makes him harder to hit he's able to make plays to the backside of the ice his vision you know, is world-class. So he, he can see it all coming before it happens. I mean, he's evolved his shot. It's so difficult to say when it'll fall off. I think that he get, he'll get a rebirth. And I think that was the thing with, with uh, the Debrinket development and how quickly he was able to come in and become really important to the Blackhawks. And then how much time Kane subsequently spent with him. King gets juice out of that. That here's a guy who can, you know, who can further it. So whether that's in Chicago or somewhere else, um, where he finds a way to, uh, you know, to get that juice again of winning, you know, because I, the one thing that you got to be worried about um, as it relates to some of these guys is they won a lot, and and the longer the period of time is where there really isn't a chance to be a contender. Uh, it's going to wear on them because uh, there's only the one thing that's really highly characteristic of people that have won a Stanley cup is that they have a massive desire to win again. And the number of times that they win, they just want to win again. So um, hopefully in Chicago, they're able to turn around and, and he's, he's able to be in a contending team and, and get some, get some of that juice and excitement. But I mean, geez, he's running at 80 points right now. 
Um, you know, he's in the top, whatever, 15, top 12, 15 in the league. And goal scoring's picked up again. And his yeah. goal scoring is picked up again. And uh, I thought he was unlucky a lot in the, uh, the first part of the year. I thought he was generating some really good looks. And now he's up back up over 20 goals. I mean, he he starts getting in that 25, you know, flirting with 30 goals. And then his assists are always going to be there. I mean, especially on this year's team where there's been so much turmoil between coaching changes and the amount of turnover, then you have the GM change and everything else that went on for him to be doing what he's doing right now. It doesn't really pose a great argument for those who might say that he has less time being at the top. I I think if you're able to overcome the way he has to this point, it would suggest to me that there's many more years. I, I just don't see a possibility of him falling off anytime in the next three to five years. I, I think he's got that much juice in the tank. It's funny that I, when you talked about players being smaller, and it's not really talked about now because Kane and Debrink have established themselves. But if you said 20 years ago that these are the two guys that would be on the line and 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 like they're, they're both producing multi-point games, you know, as of late, especially to Brinkett's, you know, he's yeah. definitely at 40 goals again, and and Kane's gonna, you know, he's top 10 in, in points. Like it just, um, yeah. That, and I guess I was going to take this question and kind of evolve it into you. Um, you know, you you watch so many shifts of so many guys around the league. Do you see the game trending in any different ways? Anything that's new as of late that we haven't seen in, in NHL? Or well, the the demand to be able to play offensively off the puck now is more than I think it has ever been, and it's getting more and more. So your speed, your speed of how fast the team plays used to be very de- very de- determined upon the skating ability of your of your players. If you had a good skating team, then they would play fast. If your team wasn't that good of a skating team, then they wouldn't play as fast. Now the puck moves so well that the, the game is played at the pace of the puck. And so it's that create that's a good thing. The problem is is that the people that are off the puck are now sprinting and moving faster than they've ever done and lower in the lineup. So you have even fourth line teams are playing and have an expectation of team a, a fourth line on a team has an expectation of, of generating and maintaining pace of the game. And that's very different. And I don't think that's going away. And, you know, the, the, the way in which teams defend is now so much more five man. So it used to be very much a one-on-one game and you can tell the sophistication of a league by its, uh, by its players, uh, use of or utility of a one of one-on-one the lower the level the more one-on-one that occurs and the higher the level that the, the expression of the game is going to be played with more people demanding to be moved off the puck and expecting to get pucks and that's where like it was really interesting because one of my favorite stories this year that's been under talked about to my dismay has been the Czech women's national team at the uh, recent Olympics. And the reason why is because normally when you have a team that is under uh, underdeveloped in the sense of their skill level, their skill level is lower than whom they're going to play. Like obviously Canada and the U S and then there's everybody else and no one has the depth. 
the same. They don't have the depth. They have a few kids that can play, but they're, they're still a, what you call a developing program. For them to go to a possession style offense or possession style game, possession style identity and move the puck, even on the penalty kill, they're not icing it. They're making plays and they're trying to possess the puck as often they can. And then when they're in the offensive zone, just the rotations and how they were killing plays early and then getting pucks back in the neutral zone, very, very high level thinking and reminiscent of kind of where the game is going. And it's rare to see um, a program like that. I would say like lead. So like even, you know, Canada wins the gold. The U S is always, it was one of going to be one or the other, but in the, in the, you know, quarterfinal game, the, the checks are running the U S show for two periods. They just ran their show. They had the puck the whole time. It was really, and it, was only because they fell off. They didn't have the fitness. They don't have that next layer to be able to push it over to the top. But from a stylistic, stylistic standpoint, their game is so much more sophisticated than the other two. The teams that are winning, they're, the, the check game, the style of play and the way that they're trying to play is more sophisticated. I thought it, I think it's a, such a positive sign in hockey. And it, it just is a good example of teams that are underdeveloped, like they're trying to trying to find that next thing. The, the old school of thinking is, hey, like, let's dumb it down. You're going to just get it going north, chip it over, chip it out, chip it over, chip it in, you know, work it down there, defend, block shots, don't handle the puck, don't take any risks, throw it off the glass. The worst, the one thing we don't want is the puck on our stick. That's usually how underdeveloped teams play. They want to defend and they just hope for the best. You got a goalie makes 50 saves and you score on the power play and try to squeeze out a win. That's not how these guys were doing it. These guys are holding the puck the whole game, making plays, you know, passing the puck six, eight times before they even get out of the neutral zone. That is a whole different way of doing things. And I'm hopeful that a lot more programs and all different levels doesn't have to be female and could be male as well, that are start to take a look at that type of model of like, we need to have the puck. We need to have it. We need to make plays with it. We need to demand it so that then when we do get the depth, we're ready to be able to compete with these top teams. I thought it was genius. Uh, the, the architect there was a guy named Thomas Pacina. And uh, I thought what he did with that program is pure genius. And uh, I'm, I was hopeful that they would have gotten, they, they just stumbled at just the wrong time. I wanted them to get into a semifinal uh, where it would really pop and highlight. Um, but it didn't, it wasn't in the cards this, this time, maybe in the next cycle it'll happen, but it speaks to your point about, you know, the development, underdeveloped players and what they need to do and how the game is going. The game is going with people playing at the pace of the puck and having the puck do a lot of the work, which sounds like a great idea until you see the rest of the other four players who don't have it and you see that they're not really moving. Now, when you see purposeful movement off the puck, the puck starts zipping around and you're able to elevate the style of play. That's occurring in the NHL. And that's really why that league is getting harder and harder 
to play in because the demand for you to be able to think offensively at a higher rate, lower in a lineup is really at, at an all time high. And now when I saw that with that Czech team, it just was perfect for me because I was like, man, that's such a, that's a, uh, that's a paradigm shift in underdeveloped, you know, countries that are trying to find depth to go that route was really unique. And I, I hope it's something that people study and, and carry on. One of the last things I wanted to talk about is that you, uh, you know, you've, you've done your hockey summit and, and I have players and, and certainly you've created this community, but now trying something different where you can actually have a, uh, I, I guess it's more of a coaches conference coming up. And I don't know if you kind of going to share the details and what, what, what do you hope to kind of provide in that? Yeah. So like, uh, just before the pandemic, we had it that we were going to have this conference in Florida in April. And uh, basically what it was, was coaches, players, parents, whoever wanted to come. And I would just run it um, where it'd be very interactive and me being, um, you know, in a unique environment where we're in the arena. Normally when you go to these things, like you're in a, like in a conference room and it's, you know, you get one person come up, talk about one thing. And then another person comes up, talks about another thing. And been like that for a long time and my my theory behind it was i wanted something that was really progressive uh in the sense not progressive in terms of futuristic but progressive in the sense of one the the first topic had relationship to the next topic which had relationship to the next topic and then you were kind of building this 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 understanding of hockey development specifically player development and where the game is going and 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 what I feel like is belfry offense like this stuff that we were talking about previously that's what we were doing and then of course the pandemic hits and then we I, I was like I want this to be an in-person event so we waited now the two years and now we're going to do it this April it's April 19th it's going to start in Estero Florida and uh, we're really excited to, to have people down there to do this in-person event. But what makes it unique is that it's a build rather than, you know, you have a bunch of different speakers from all over. Now we have the, the real networking value of what we have there is more with the people that are coming to attend and less about the people who are presenting. We, I, I want it to be a build and go through these player development pieces and a lot of things that I haven't been able to really expound upon and illustrate. And then with us being at the rink, I can go on the ice and we can have interactive uh, understanding of what we're going to do um, through the, through what we're doing in the sessions. When we go on the ice, we're able to carry that forward and create much more of a, of a greater understanding. So I couldn't be more excited about it. I, I I've been waiting not so patiently for two years uh, to finally get to this point. And so it, it kind of dovetails with it, you know, it starts with the, started with the book and now we have this online community. So now it makes perfect sense that we would now have some in-person event to continue to further the discussions about player development and where the game is going and how people can, what people should start to study, what people should start to take a look at more to further educate themselves to be better for their teams that they're coaching or for just a greater understanding to be a better, a better parent as you're watching your own kid go through the process. So that's what it's about. If, if people want more information about the community, about the, uh, the event, where, where can they get everything? They will go to www.belfryhockey.com. Our website, it's uh, pretty, pretty cleanly uh, laid out there and they can, uh, there's a, a panel on the side that will give them every, uh, 
um, every uh, page. They can pick whatever they want to whatever they want to do. The memberships are not really all that expensive for the monthly membership, and then you know they certainly could come to the event. And people who have a membership, they get fifty percent off the event, which is uh, which has been nice for a great way to reward those people who haven't been able to come to the perfect to, to the to the event, but have been with us now for the last year. Um, so we want all those members to have a very, have an opportunity to kind of further the discussions that we have every month. Now we can do it in person. And, and if people are interested in the book, uh, it's on Amazon and Triumph's website. And it's now, I think there's some hard covers that are probably on sale still. And then, uh, hopefully they'll sell out soon. And then you know, there's certainly paperbacks available too. And our, our lifelong dream is still to get Daryl to do a, uh, audio version of that oh, and really yeah. continue to <laughs> continue to work on that. Uh, no, Jay, I, I appreciate you doing this. We'll have to, I, yeah, this, I, I always obviously love talking to you. We'll have to try to do this annually. Whenever Laz is on vacation, we'll, uh, we'll have you jump in and you can be the, uh, the backup host. So I love it. I love it. Cool. Thanks again Thanks. for having me and having this, this type of, uh, opportunity. We don't do it. I don't do it as often as I'd like to, but you know, we can now, you know, get some of these ideas out and hopefully create even more of a discussion. Sounds good. No, Joe, appreciate it. He's Joe Belfry. I'm Scott Powers, and this is Laz and Powers. And we'll, uh, Laz will be back next week and we'll be talking more Blackhawks. Take care. And I know that I can fix it. I can help even just a little.